Hollow Windows and Doors of Wisconsin has six lines to fit your style and financing to fit any budget. Through November 30th, choose 12 months, no payments and no interest, plus 20% off installation. Set your free consultation now at PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Good to be back. Thanks to Jane Metnair and Carol Kane for filling in for a couple days last week and uh, Scott Boris for filling in a couple days as well. I am back. Uh, no vacation schedule between now and the end of the year. So that's going to be... Uh, so. Just count on me being here next uh, six weeks, eight weeks, whatever, taking you up to New Year's. All right. I, I, as I was mentioning earlier, I was in, in southwest Florida and, and in, in Key West, and it, we were in southwest Florida for a few days, and we were traveling up and down US 41, which is what they call the Tamiami Trail. It runs from Tampa down um, like through Naples and cuts across and then ends up in Miami and then it, it goes, it, it ultimately becomes US-1 heading down to, to Key West. And if you've ever driven that that stretch of, of road, you know that you, you just, it's like being at the speedway at Indianapolis. I mean, people, if the speed limit is 60 miles an hour, people are driving 80 miles an hour and there's stoplights and, you know, people are blowing through. If you, if you see a yellow light, that means you just accelerate as fast as you can. And and so it takes a little while to get used to it. But but even with all the danger that comes from driving the Tamiami Trail, once again, it, it's nothing, nothing compared to driving around here. And I start off the program probably the way I ended up the program a week ago Friday with just another one of these senseless stories involving reckless driving in the city of Milwaukee and we, we give it all lip service. We, we talk about it. We say, well, we've got to do something about this, but, but nothing gets done and it doesn't change. And you wonder how many people have to die seriously before we have this reckoning and saying, all right, stealing cars is a big deal. Driving recklessly is a big deal and we need to deter it. The latest example of this, Friday, 8.15 in the evening. So we're not, again, talking about 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. We're talking about 8.15 in the 3600 block of West Lincoln Avenue on the south side of Milwaukee. Now, it's 8.15 at night. Think about where you were Friday night at 8.15. Maybe you were going out to dinner. Maybe you were coming back from shopping to get a head start on the weekend. Maybe you were coming back from your Friday fish fry. Whatever. It's 8.15. Not 3 o'clock in the morning. Not 4 o'clock in the morning. It's 8.15 when all sorts of people are out on the road. Well, here's what happened. You have a car. It's stolen, of course. Stolen 2021 Hyundai Tucson. All right, driving, apparently what they're saying is it is driving um, eastbound, uh, presumably on, on like Lincoln Avenue. The driver, they're going 80 to 90 miles an hour. Now, I'm not positive what the speed limit is there. I want to say 35. Maybe it's 40. Maybe maybe it's 40. But re- regardless, it's going 80 to 90 miles an hour. That is the estimate. Stolen car. The driver of the vehicle loses control of the car, and it goes sideways and strikes a tree. If you saw the pictures of this on television, 
it, it's just, it's mind-blowing. Because what happened is the car apparently at, at 80 to 90 miles an hour hits the, the tree sideways and severs the car in half. Front half of the car. So, I mean, imagine you got the front seat and the back seat. The front seat and everything forward goes one way. The back seat and everything, you know, behind that goes another way. The car is severed in half when it hits the tree at 80 to 90 miles an hour. The people in the back seat are not wearing seat belts. They are both ejected from the vehicle, which is, again, one of the reasons why, even if you're driving at a high speed in a stolen car, you should wear seatbelts. They're both ejected from the vehicle. One, one, and I think they're brothers, 16-year-old, dead at the scene. This is in the back seat. 13-year-old, um, ejected in the hospital in critical condition. So you, you've got one dead, somebody else severely injured as a result of this. The people driving in the front um, are apparently uninjured. They get out of the car and run away. So at least that that's the scenario. So you've got one person dead, one person critically injured, and the two that were in the front have now fled and, and are at, at large because heaven forbid that you should stand around and try to render assistance and see what happened to your friends who you've killed by your reckless driving. Here is the dazzling detail. The two that were in the back seat, one was 13 years old. The person who died was 16 years old. And then, again, we, we don't know, at least they haven't released the names and they haven't arrested the people that were in the front seat. But 8.15 at night, 3600 block of Lincoln Avenue, stolen car, 80 to 90 miles an hour. Now, in this particular case, when it hits the tree, uh, again, the, the victim's are the people that were in the car, you know, driving and joyriding and recklessly driving in the stolen car. Don't know how old the kid was that was driving the vehicle, but in the back seat, it's 16 or 13 and 13. So my guess is it's going to be people that are in that range, you know. So you've got two people that are dead, two other people that have run away. It could have very easily been you or me or your spouse or your kids or your grandkids because it's 815. And, and there's, again, another one of these stories where people have no regard for human life a- at all. Stolen car, joyride, no accountability. And, and let's be honest about this. Let us say that in this particular situation, there weren't, there wasn't one kid dead and another in critical condition. Let's just say it was a situation where they, they blow out a tire and the, the car stops on its own and the police are able to come and they're able to arrest them. We, we know very well that if that had been the scenario, there would have been nothing that happened to these people in the car. Absolutely nothing. We know this would have been another scenario where, okay, you haul them into juvenile court. Maybe, maybe you try to get a delinquency petition. Maybe you slap them on the wrist. But you know nothing's going to happen. Now, ultimately, because somebody's dead, because it was this destructive, something is probably going to happen once they, they catch the person who was driving. But how many more of these situations do we have to tolerate before we realize that stealing cars and going on joy rides at 90 miles an hour is a really, really, really big deal. And I guess the answer is 
a lot more people are apparently going to have to die because, at least so far, there doesn't appear to be any significant movement to hold the people that are stealing the cars and are going on these joy rides. There doesn't appear to be any significant movement to hold them accountable unless and until they end up killing somebody. And that means that, I'm telling you, All of us who are out on the mean streets of Milwaukee, whether it's 4 o'clock in the morning, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, or 8.15 in the afternoon, are taking our lives into our own hands because of all the reckless crazinesses out there and the inability of the court system to address that and hold people accountable. Okay, when we come back, let's talk Rittenhouse. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. As I was mentioning earlier when I was talking to Carol and Steve, this is maybe an indication of, of somebody desperately in need of, of a life. Um, because like last week, I, I was watching the Rittenhouse trial when I was watching him testify and, and the uh, part of his direct testimony, but a lot of the cross examination. So I'm sitting on the speech and I've got my computer out there and I'm on the Wi-Fi and I'm watching it. And, and I thought I, I thought it was incredibly interesting watching, you know, how he reacted to the question. So I've sort of been following the trial. If you've been paying attention today, the uh, first couple hours were spent with arguing about what jury instructions were going to be given, and then the judge instructing the jury. And I, I will tell you, what happened in the Rittenhouse trial is no different than happens pretty much every time a jury gets instructed. Uh, they, the, the, you know, the, the instructions try to break down sort of arcane legal terms and give you elements. And I have no doubt the jury's eyes were probably glazing over during this. And then the prosecution started with its closing argument. The way it works, because the state has the burden of proof, the state gets the ability to open and close. So the state gives its first part of the argument and the closing argument. And then what happens is the defense gets its opportunity. And then the, the prosecution gets its chance to give its final rebuttal. The judge gives a couple final instructions, and then the jury begins deliberations. It's unclear to me what whether they're going to start deliberating tonight or not. Um, I think part of it depends on what time the closing arguments get done. And a lot of times the, the judges will give, get, allow the jury to decide. You know, that's and, and sometimes the jury wants to get into this. Other times, you know, they've been there since 9 o'clock in the morning. They just want to go home and start again. At the conclusion of the, the case, the judge is going to get rid of the six jurors. Um, keep in mind, they started with 20. They lost two during the two weeks of the trial. So that leaves 18. Only 12 can deliberate. So six jurors will be removed. How they're going to decide to remove them, I don't know. Typically, you just draw lots, and it's just a random choice. And then that leaves you with 12. As Carol and I were discussing just a couple minutes ago, um, whether or not they're sequestered or not, that that's going to be up to the judge. Sequestered means kind of locked up and sent out to to a hotel. They have not been sequestered during the the trial itself. But now that you're in deliberations, and now that you've dis, you will ultimately end up discharging six of them. You're just down to twelve because what what happens is if if you lose a juror now, something happens on their way home, or they they're improperly influenced by something. 
you, you need 12 to reach a verdict. Otherwise, if you lose somebody once you're in deliberations, it, it's, it's a mistrial and you have to do the whole thing over again. So I don't know what the judge is thinking of. He hasn't mentioned sequestration to the jury as of yet. So I, normally, if there's a chance you're going to be sequestered, you tell them, hey, pack a bag. You might get, you might be sequestered. I don't think he's done that at this point in time. So maybe that means he's not thinking of sequestering the jury, or if so, maybe it means he's going to tell them, you know, come back tomorrow and then begin deliberations and then, you know, bring your toothbrushes with you. Don't, don't know exactly how that's going to work out. But whether it's this evening or first thing tomorrow, the jury is going to begin deliberations. All right. 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, I know you had to have been watching this trial because, trust me, e- even though I'm halfway around the country, that this this trial has the attention of the nation. Washington Post, New York Times, Chicago Tribune. This is being featured on the ABC News, the NBC News, the CBS News. I mean, you. this is, is a lead thing. People all over the country are watching this case for a number of different reasons. Let me ask you the question as we start out. How do you think this is going to turn out? We've now had all the evidence. We've been discussing this. I know a lot of people have been discussing it since this incident happened 14 or 15 months ago. Now the prosecution has presented its case. You've heard from Kyle Rittenhouse. You've heard from other witnesses. How do you think this case is going to turn out? 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I'll give you my analysis of this, but I'm curious as to what you think after two weeks of trial. We discuss in just a moment. 855-616-1620. This is Jeff Wagner. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, all the evidence is now in in the Rittenhouse case. The prosecution and the defense are making their final arguments to the jury, telling them what they think the results should be. The jury will begin deliberating, presumably either later this afternoon, late this afternoon, or at the very latest tomorrow morning. What's going to happen? Sam and McHenry. Sam, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, how you doing, Jeff? Real well, thank you. What's going to happen here? Well, I think he's going to be acquitted, and the reason why I think that is in this jury box. And, uh, you know, they're dropping the murder rap because they know self-defense is just all over the place here. So, you know, now they're talking about different levels of manslaughter. You know, it's so confusing right now. I don't see how you get 12 guys to go along uh, with this anymore because if if self-defense got him out of murder, then it's going to get him out of manslaughter, too. Yeah. You know, no, thank you. know, it is. Thanks for the call. That's one of the questions I've gotten that the. The judge has instructed them at the request of the prosecution on some things that we call lesser included offenses. And, and it's sort of interesting how this all happened, because you, 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 what a lesser included offense is, is you, you charge a significant offense like like homicide. And there might be lesser offenses that are within that homicide. You can't prove all the elements of first degree intentional homicide, but you could prove other things. Now, Typically, what happens is it's the defense that is asking for lesser included charges. 
because the prosecutors get to, to charge the case. I would often have situations where I charge the case because I charged what I thought the person had done, and the defense, in an effort to say, okay, well, we know he's going to be found guilty of something, but we, we, want, to, we want it to be less than the maximum. It's the defense that will argue for lesser included. In this case, it's the prosecution that has been offer, you know, has been asking for lesser included offenses, which tells me the prosecution has significant doubts about its ability to secure convictions on the charges that it's brought and is trying to give the jury something that it can salvage. So it's it's a little bit different, you know, when you have the prosecution wanting the lesser included offenses. But to Sam's point, he makes a very interesting point. You need to realize this. The ver- jury, the verdict of a jury needs to be unanimous one way or the other. All 12 people need to agree that the person is guilty as charged, either of the major count or of whatever that lesser included offense would be, or they need to agree beyond a reasonable doubt that the state hasn't proven its case. We don't ask people to find people guilty or innocent. We say guilty or not guilty. The state has the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And I I think that's that's one of the factors that's weighing here is that, you know, is there a reasonable doubt as to the defendant's guilt? Let's talk to Scott in South Milwaukee. Scott, you're on WTMJ. Uh, hey, good afternoon, Jeff. Hi, yeah, my, my take is that this is either going to be an acquittal or it's going to be a hung jury. And the reason why I say that is because because with our diversity of stances on, on self-defense and the use of, gu- and use of guns, is that I don't think you're going to get twelve people. I don't believe that you're going to get twelve people to to come together and say this person is guilty. But I also think that you're going to have strong feelings in there that mm-hmm. a 17 year old running around the running around the city of Kenosha armed armed the way he was, he should not be there. Yeah. And they're going to hang, and they're going to hang in there and basically whatever say that that he needs to be he need he needs to be convicted of something. Again, I again, I again, I don't believe that he's guilty of the higher level charges, but of the lower level charges, there's something in there, whatever that I my take is he needs to sit, he needs to spend some time, whatever thinking about thinking about it. And I also think that a point needs to be sent to the broader community that you just that you just don't run into a community with an AR-15 from out, from out of town, or whatever, to defend a business and property, which is not even your own property. Yes, Scott, thanks for I mean, that's an interesting point, and that's one of the things I think the prosecutors are trying to do with the lesser-included offenses. I think they realize that the way this trial panned out doesn't give them a base. They're, they're not going to get convictions on the big counts. But I think what they're hoping is exactly the point that you made. There'll be some people on the jury who just say, Look, um, self-defense notwithstanding, we're he, he shouldn't have been there. He shouldn't have had the gun. People are dead. We need to do something to hold him accountable. So, can we find some charge that we can we can all agree on? I, I don't. I don't know how possible that's going to be. All right, let's take a quick break for the news. When we come back, I'll tell you how I see this case playing out. We'll continue to take calls. 855-616-1620. That's the Iconet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, case is going to go to the jury either later today or at the very latest tomorrow morning. What do you think is going to happen? What will the verdict be? 855-616-1620. A number of people have been extremely critical of the job the prosecution has done. Oh, prosecution got outmaneuvered, this or that or the other. I'm not one of them. This was a case 
where because of all the political, small p political issues, they had to charge it. And the problem is, unlike many cases where you go in as the prosecutor, you've got an overwhelming case. This is not an overwhelming case. This is a case that from the beginning screamed reasonable doubt and self-defense. The prosecution, I think, felt incredible political pressure to try to charge the maximum possible. And the, the problem is it is an extremely flawed case. I think regardless of what happens, the prosecution did the best they could with what they had. I mean, it's here. here's the bottom line. I think in the beginning, the prosecution hoped it would be able to establish that Rittenhouse was the, this evil white supremacist who, you know, came to Kenosha with the idea of carrying this gun and, and looking to shoot protesters. I mean, I think that was the, the theory that was kind of out there that they hoped, you know, they would be able to develop, and, and they just weren't. I mean, w- what happened and what's the picture that came out at the trial, and I, I think this is this is the picture of reality. In his opening statement, the prosecutor used the term chaos tourist. He said, you know, Rittenhouse was a chaos tourist. And, you know, and I, I think that's kind of accurate. But but there were a lot of people that were chaos tourists. That you, you just look at the videos from that night, and this is the third night of the rioting, protests, whatever you want to call it. I mean, you just have all sorts of people that they are hanging around, and, and they're just there to be part of the scene. And almost nobody is up to any good. Now, admittedly, some people aren't carrying guns. But almost nobody is up to any good. You've got people who are screaming the F word at each other and they're running around the streets and people are throwing rocks and yelling and things like that at each other. It's just, it is it is a mess. So into this situation comes this 17-year-old kid who I, I, I do believe, and I, I think he came across as a very, very good witness. Now, hear me out as I kind of expand on that. I mean, I don't think he came across as evil. I mean, he he's down there earlier in the day. He's talking to the guys from the car store. They say they'd like some help. I think that's what the jury's going to believe. So he goes down with some of his buddies, and yes, he's got the rifle for self-protection, and yes, he shouldn't have had it with him. Okay, no, no disagreement with that. So he's in this situation. I think the test, but I don't think he went there with the idea that, oh, I'm going to go kill a bunch of protesters. At least that's certainly not the impression that was created from his his testimony so you're down there you're in this chaotic situation and you you've got people that are yelling at each other etc etc and he quickly finds himself over his head in a big way the first guy that ends up you know confronting him is this mr rosenbaum and he's he's got his own situations and clearly i think there's some mental issues that are going on and and he's he's a troublemaker now you don't get to be shot just because you're troublemakers but he's out there he's stoking confrontations and the testimony is he's screaming if i get you alone i'm going to kill you and then you know you have in the minutes before the shooting you have rittenhouse the kid carrying the gun you know who ends up getting separated he's being chased by rosenbaum and and I think the testimony is pretty clear that Rosenbaum w- was not deterred by the fact that Rittenhouse had the gun and was, in fact, lunging to try to grab the gun. That That's what the testimony shows. The prosecution's, you know, trying to break this down and saying, well, there wasn't any threat. But this is all happening, you know, simultaneously. And I, I bring this up because, to me, that first shooting absolutely, totally screams self-defense. At the very least, it screams 
that keep in mind the prosecution has to disprove the concept of self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt because that that's the standard it's not what do i think might have happened it's has the prosecution proven its case beyond a reasonable doubt that this wasn't a self-defense case and in, in that situation I, I i i just don't see it i i don't i i don't see it then you've got the stuff that happens afterwards. You've got the the shooting. The gun goes off. You've got you know Rittenhouse being lunged at with the guy with the skateboard. You've got the other guy who was wounded. You know he he's carrying a gun that he has out. You put this together with all the chaos that is out there, and again to me, it, it's it's a situation that that screams self defense. I am as troubled as many people are by the situation of people bringing guns into this chaos situation and then, you know, all the stuff that happens. And I think there's going to be members of the jury, and I agree with a couple of our first callers, that are going to be troubled by this. They're going to say whatever the elements of this offense is, Rittenhouse shouldn't have been there. You know, he shouldn't have had the gun. And if he wasn't in this situation, none of the rest of that stuff would have happened, which is why I think that there might be some people who on that jury who are like holdouts for either a conviction on one of the lesser included offenses as to some count or alternatively, you know, the jury ends up being hung because some people are going to say, look, he's the one that started this whole thing. He put himself in this situation and, you know, and, and two people are dead and another person is shot and we're just not going to let him walk. At the same time, I think that there's going to be a lot of people who are just going to say, look, that this is a situation, even if he shouldn't have been there, that's not what he's charged with. He's not charged with being in the wrong place at the wrong time. He's not charged with, with having a, a gun in the middle of this, this riot. That's not what the offense is. The offense is he, he's charged with homicide. And, you know, has the state proven self, uh, disproven the concept of self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt? And, and again, as I've been saying all along, this is a case that to me screams screams self-defense. And so I, I think maybe you find a lesser included offense that is a compromise of the verdict. At the same time, I think the jury has pretty much been instructed that if you find this was an exercise in self-defense as to any of the shootings, then boom, that that's the end of the inquiry. I will be surprised. I will be shocked if he is convicted of all the major charges against him. I think, and you can never know how a jury is is perceiving these things, I think if they look at the elements as they have been instructed on the law, I think an acquittal is the most likely situation. Now, again, jurors, jurors can reach compromise verdicts, and there may very well be a couple people on that jury who are just going to say, look, two people are dead, one person has been shot, we're not going to just... We, we're not going to just let this guy walk. And so they'll try to find some agreement to maybe, you know, convict him on, on some count. It, I would be shocked if it's one of the major counts, but is it possible that as a compromise sort of verdict, you, you might get a, a guilty on one count or another? Yeah, it, it's possible and a lesser included. But as far as the, the major counts, I just don't believe that the state has disproved the idea of self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, if I am right, what that means moving forward is kind of an open question because the last thing anybody wants is to have private citizens 
think that you can walk into a chaotic situation like this with guns and shoot other people and then say, well, that this this was self-defense. Some people will interpret that if there's been an acquittal. Some people will interpret that, and a lot of talking heads will, as the lesson of the Rittenhouse case. I don't necessarily think that's the case. This is a really, really unique fact situation. He's a unique defendant. This is a unique fact situation. So I don't know that you can draw broader conclusions from this. But for people who think that there's going to be convictions all the way around, I, I don't I don't see it. I could be wrong. Sometimes you just can't figure out exactly what jurors are going to do. But, you know, but I just I think regardless of what any of us think happened, the thing you have to keep coming back to is it is the state that has the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And as I've been saying all along, this is a case to me which is unfortunate, bad circumstances, bad results. But from a perspective as a prosecutor with the charges that are laid out there, it's a case that I think screams reasonable doubt, and the state has the burden of overcoming that. All right. The other question is, what happens after the verdict? We'll discuss that in just a minute. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. number of people are asking, well, what about the gun charge? Possession of a dangerous weapon by a person under 18. And then the argument is, if if you're illegally carrying the weapon in the first place, can you exercise the question of self-defense? We don't have to get that far because this morning the circuit court judge dismissed the charge of possession of a dangerous weapon by a person under 18. Um, now, you might say, well, well, why is that? Well, apparently there is, and I take no position on this one way or the other, um, the defense team had said, look, there's an exception in the law for 16 and 17-year-olds that allow them to carry firearms like, like this. And he didn't bring it across state lines. It was in Wisconsin. So the defense team had been arguing that this this rifle, because 16 and 17-year-olds, for example, are allowed to go deer hunting and things like that and possess guns, agree with it or disagree with it. The judge said, All right, based on the evidence that was presented at trial, I don't think the prosecution has met the elements of the possession of a dangerous weapon by a person under 18, because I believe, based on the elements, the evidence that's presented, it fits within this this exception that allows people to carry guns like this if you're 16 or 17. So the judge has tossed that count. So the gun count is out of this case, won't be considered. So it's not like you can say, well, he he illegally possessed the gun, and so therefore he couldn't exercise his right to self-defense by using it. So that's out of there. All right. Here's the other thing, proving perhaps that people can learn from their mistakes, understanding that there is at least a chance for an acquittal in this case. Governor Evers has put 500 Wisconsin National Guard troops on standby in order to, to send them to, to Kenosha quickly in the event that there is an acquittal. I guess theoretically you could also do it in the event of a conviction, but let, let's face it, the the uh, an acquittal on most major counts would be, I think, what people would presume is most likely to lead to unrest in the streets. Evers mobilized about 500 troops to help hundreds of officers from uh, surrounding law enforcement agencies. In other words, the, the preliminary plan is not to allow law enforcement to be overwhelmed by protesters 
rioters, looters, whatever happens, like happened back in August of 2020 following the Jacob Blake case. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, just a couple minutes. But Evers, Evers has 500 National Guards troops mobilized. Now, in Wauwatosa, when they did that following the decision of following the decision to you know not to prosecute the um Joseph Mensa that he had a huge presence and it, it stopped any significant rioting and burning from going on but it was criticized by a lot of residents afterwards as being overkill all right is tony evers engaging in overkill by mobilizing 500 national guard troops and trust me they've got hundreds of local law enforcement agencies agents going on as well 855-616-1620 that is the accurate mortgage talk and text line all right is evers doing the right thing by Again, mobilizing the National Guard so authorities in Kenosha are not overwhelmed like they were the first two nights in August of 2020. 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Um, I guess I, I kind of look at this and I'd say it is indicative of the fact that maybe you can learn from your mistakes because I think one of the big mistakes that was made in this whole situation was the tepid response by the governor. And I think there's a lot of stuff that goes to this. But at first night, when the riots were starting to break out, keep in mind, I think there were only 125 National Guard troops sent, and, and they were in real limited instruction. They were they had a very limited role, like defending a couple of, of the public buildings. And as a result, you know, everything else around them turned into chaos. I, I think in this particular case... I don't know what the verdict is going to be, but I think it is um, better safe than sorry. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Ron in Sheboygan. Ron, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, thanks for having me on. Hi, Ron. I just had a question regarding regarding the um, National Guard. I'm glad Tony Evers, or Governor Tony Evers, mobilized them, but I think that they, sh- they should have some there already because after this verdict is determined, they might start immediately rioting and burning. Are those National Guard going to be able to come from other towns and uh, leave their jobs and so forth and and get there in time? I think that there should be some there to show police force. Um, Yeah, thanks, Rico. Well, I mean, I think, again, I I lumped this, and I said the same thing about what they did in Wauwatosa. Better safe than, than sorry. Hopefully cooler heads will prevail if there is a verdict that is not popular in certain segments but you you can't allow you can't allow a mob to an angry mob to to do to Kenosha what the angry mob did to Kenosha you know 14 15 months ago you you can't do that and i think the, the look if there had been a better law enforcement response the first night of the riots in August, we, we wouldn't have had this Rittenhouse thing. And, and I'm, not, I'm not justifying the behavior, but this is what all this stuff was put into motion by the fact that law enforcement, civilian authority, lost control in Kenosha those first two nights. Now, they were regaining control, and you can make a strong argument that you didn't need all these chaos tourists coming in, and, and I, I appreciate that. But law enforcement in Kenosha lost control certainly the first night, probably the second night, and I think it would be foolish, absolutely foolish in the extreme to 
to allow something like that to happen again. So, yeah, 500 troops mobilized. I don't know whether, I don't know what the plans are as to when you're going to deploy them. And my recommendation would be, let's have this huge presence while the jury is deliberating because, again, if, if there's flash riots, and I'm not saying it's going to happen, hopefully cooler heads will prevail, but you, you want to be safe, not sorry. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. One, one final thought on today's show before we move away from Kyle Rittenhouse, and we will obviously be spending a lot of time talking about it over the course of the next couple of days. I, I, I keep going back to this phrase that the prosecutor used in the beginning of, of the case about how he called Rittenhouse a, a chaos tourist. And, and I wrote down that phrase, and I, and I loved it because it, it's true. Rittenhouse was a chaos tourist. But, but here's the deal. Lots and lots of people that were there that night were, were chaos tourists. If you look at the video, what you see is the people who are in this, this environment, um, with, with really no good purpose. I mean, they're just, they're there to be there. You've got people and you've got people that are screaming at each other and blank you and no blank you. And there's people that are throwing things. And you've got again that, that, that element of the crowd that's into the violence and they're throwing rocks and they're looting and they're doing the burning. And this, to me, the ultimate thing that happened to the, about this and the, perhaps the biggest takeaway moving forward. And, and maybe this can be an instructional situation regardless of what happens in the Rittenhouse verdict, and that is that civilian authorities cannot, under any circumstances, lose control of these situations because it it breeds what ended up happening. If, If authorities had been able to control the riots and the looting the first night, there wouldn't have been a Kyle Rittenhouse showing up on the third night, there wouldn't have been people screaming and, and running at Kyle Rittenhouse. And I'm not I'm not justifying what Rittenhouse did. I'm just saying that you have this volatile situation where you have all sorts of people who are there with no good purpose for being there. And and it leads to these situations. It's why and look, and I appreciate the right to protest and the right to assemble and things like that. But it's why civilian authorities have to keep things under control because if you lose control of the streets you create this environment where you have the chaos tourists whether they're the chaos tourists that are there to defend the buildings that are that the law enforcement can't defend or whether it's the chaos tourists that are there because they want to be part of this you know and, and they want to throw rocks and they want to be jumping around and they want to be just involved and in the middle of all this you know creating havoc that that's it's a bad situation because it leads to these things and i guess as i as i watch these videos that that's that is my takeaway moving forward about how yes you want to respect the right of lawful protest and things like that but you you have to have enough of a presence so you cannot allow the mob to take over because that's what happened in kenosha the mob took over and then in response you had all these other people that that came to kind of balance out the 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 mob and and it led to this situation that that nobody 
nobody wants to see. And certainly nobody wants to see this happen again. So that that's kind of the message. It is the message to civilian authorities, whether it's police chiefs or county sheriffs or governors, that you, you can't downplay this. And, I mean, I firmly believe that Tony Evers was – very, very concerned about the optics. He didn't want to, he didn't want to look bad to his left wing supporters by, by, quote unquote, overreacting and, and sending too many National Guard people in. So when he sent people, National Guard people in, it was an insufficient force and they, they were restricted as to what they, they could do. Well, you, you can't do that. You, you, you can't do that. You can't law, allow law enforcement to get outnumbered by a, by a mob because this is the type of stuff that happens. So, so maybe that's the lesson moving forward. You've got to anticipate these things. And for people out there, whether it's the chaos tourists who, who want to show up to be part of the happening and the protests or whether it's the people that want to show up as a counterbalance, maybe the message is just stay home. I mean, seriously, if, if, you know, if, if you don't belong on the streets of Kenosha, don't, don't drive to Kenosha to be part of this happening and this event, because all you do is contribute to this overall situation where things can quickly get out of control. And that's, that's what happened in, in August. And again, that, that's to me one of the lessons, regardless of whether Rittenhouse is convicted or, or acquitted. The big lesson is civilian authorities can't lose control of this stuff. And, and yeah, I understand that every time that you have groups of people that want to go out and protest and stuff, you, you've got the media and a lot of other people saying, oh, the police are overreacting. They're limiting our right to do this. Well, I, I think you got to. I mean, you have to set controls. And if you've got curfews, you've got to enforce the curfews. And if you have people throwing rocks, you have to go grab the people that are throwing rocks. And you can respect the right of legitimate people to protest and organize and, you know, walk the streets. That's okay. But once people start setting dumpsters on fire and once people start burning car lots or whatever, you've got to come in. You've got to make arrests. You've got to get those people off the streets. And maybe you have to clear the streets because otherwise Bad, bad things happen. And maybe that's the long-term lesson of, of Rittenhouse. And maybe next time there's a verdict that upsets people, maybe people think twice before, you know, taking to the streets, whether, you know, it, it's somebody that wants to come as part of a self-proclaimed vigilante militia or just because, you know, they want to go and they want to be part of the scene or whether it's somebody who says, well, I want to go down. I think it might be cool and fun to go down to this protest. And here's a rock and I'm going to chuck it. Just just stay home. Stay home. Put on Netflix. The world will be a better place for it. All right. Let us switch gears. One of the things, as I was watching the Rittenhouse videos, and this is just a a complete non sequitur, but one of the things in one of the videos, now this was August of 2020, and one of the situations, the... um, the the whole thing started, he was at a gas station or he was walking through a gas station. There was video from the gas station. I was watching the video. The price of gasoline in two, August of 2020, so, you know, we're talking about, you know, 14 months ago or so. The price of gasoline was $2.09 a gallon, $2.09 a gallon. As I was driving into work today, I, I noticed, I think you might be able to find it, it a little more cheaply. It's, it's 
I think there's about a 20 cent variation depending on, on where you are in, in our community. But in the greater Milwaukee area, over the course of the last 24 hours, I've seen gas as low as like 298, 299 a gallon, and I've seen it as high as like 326. I think a couple of the gas stations right around where we are now had it at 326. But the bottom line is, I, I, 14 months ago, it was $2.09 a gallon. So you're, you're talking over a dollar more. And some of the reports suggest that nationwide, the, the average gas price, it, it's higher now than it's been for six or seven years. But that's not unusual because prices are up all over. And, you know, we've talked about this before. Go into the grocery store, get ready for sticker shock. Go out to dinner, get ready for sticker shock. You know, go to a hardware store to buy stuff, get ready for sticker shock. And, and there's a lot, get ready to do your Thanksgiving shopping, be ready for sticker shock. Get ready to start to do your Christmas shopping. Well, be prepared to pay a lot more for things, assuming you can even find them. And there's a lot of reasons for this. I mean, part of it is supply and demand and the backlog of computer chips and all the stuff that's stuck on cargo ships. Um, part of it's just the supply chain problems with getting stuff to market. Part of it's that people are freaking out and running and buying all the toilet paper they can, which drives the price up. But regardless of what you want to look at, inflation is back in a, a big way at levels that we haven't seen in a long, long time. The estimates are that, you know, the inflation rates like somewhere north of 6% which means that you know prices absolutely going through the roof. Now the Biden administration is taking this position that oh this is just temporary and there there's really nothing to see here and we don't have to worry about it and we can you know continue you know just just spending more money. But the bottom line is, last week, consumer prices jumped 6.2% in October. That's the fifth straight month of increases of 5% or more. Groceries going up, cars, if you can find a new car, car prices going up, gasoline through the roof, rent going up, medical care going up. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I I understand that there's some people out there that just want to poo-poo it, say this is no big deal. You should not be alarmed by this at all. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think for the vast majority of us, the idea to say nothing to see here just completely and totally misses the point. Because my guess, a lot of you, when you're going out and about your daily activities and you're shopping and you're buying gasoline and you're paying for your prescription drugs, the fact that prices are going through the roof really does have you starting to notice, number one, and number two, you know, rethink where that money is going to come from. 855-616-1620. All right. The argument is inflation, this increase, no cause for alarm. I'm not buying it. How about you? 855-616-1620. We discuss. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. A, a lot of the powers that be in Washington, particularly the Biden administration, are saying, "Look, it, don't worry about this, this inflation. It, it's a temporary sort of thing, and, and it'll all, you know, it'll all go away. It's caused by COVID. It's caused by these different problems." Well, that, that's all well and good, 
but it's also caused by like runaway government spending. And you're starting to see the effect of it. Here's a text, Jeff. Gas was 209 in the summer of 2020. I think that's what I said. Now it's 309 where I live. That's approximately a 50% increase. I use my car for a job. I didn't get a 50% pay increase. Um, yeah, there, there is an element of that, that that's out there. That's why everybody was thrilled when Social Security, the benefits, if you're on Social Security, it's, hey, we got a 5.9% you know, increase. Okay, that, that's great, but the reason you got a 5.9% increase is that's meant to kept, keep up with the cost of, of living. And I'm here to tell you, if you're getting prescription meds and things like that, uh, good good luck, because those increases are a lot more than 5.9%. This, when you have inflation, it is extremely regressive. By that, I mean it impacts lower-income people a lot more significantly than it does higher-income people. I mean, look, if you're of a, at a certain economic strata, do you like paying $3.25 for a gallon of gasoline? No, of course not. You'd, you'd rather pay $2.10, but you're going to pay it, and it's not going to change your lifestyle dramatically. On the other hand, if you're at a lower-income level, yeah, that, that extra dollar a gallon, you know, times 10 or 15 or 20 gallons, however many you have to buy to get back and forth to work and get your kids to school, that that's that had that adds up. You know, when you're talking about 80 to 100 dollars extra per month, yeah, that's real money. 855-616-1620. Jeremy and Racine, Jeremy, you're on WTMJ. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Hi. There's two aspects that I was uh, concerned about with the inflation rate. Some of them I can understand why the inflation's gone up. But in some cases, I just feel that the, the consumer watchdogs are kind of like falling asleep at the switch. In the summer last year, lumber was through the roof, which increased the cost for new construction on homes or existing uh, remodeling, what have you. But that's a primarily domestic product that, by and large, it's all process and produced here in the United States and in Canada. So everybody was kind of scratching their head as to why did a two by four go from $2 to $10 a plank is, is, is mind boggling. And it seems like nobody was really looking out for the consumer at all in that aspect. And the other part is we just spent, or we just passed a, an infrastructure bill of over $1 trillion. How much buying power is that going to give us now that inflation is continuing to rise? Mm-hmm. Will we be able to get those projects done in a cost-effective manner uh, without it jumping 10, 15, 20 percent above budget? Because the inflation is is, is going right. you know through the oh yeah oh yeah so, no and I think absolutely I mean that's that that's the the whole issue that that's moving forward is you know as costs get up and up and up you know how how do you complete the, these projects? Let's talk to uh, Chris. Chris, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hello, how are you today? Real well, thank you. Okay, what's your take on this? Well, um, I'm a home builder, and as the previous caller caller mentioned, I mean, we've seen prices jump across the board. I mean, the lumber was ridiculous, but everything else now, plumbing, uh, everything, and what we're finding are big delays as well uh, that are caused by, well, garage Mm -hmm. doors, for example, can't get the steel for the tracks. They're running out of stock. Um, there's a lot of things, fasteners, all sorts of things that come from China. And uh, one of the things that I kind of wondered and started thinking about is, you know, when you buy stuff from China, and I've delved into this a little, you pay for whatever it is up front, then they send it. Right. So if you have stuff that's sitting out on a boat, you have interest accruing 
that's going to get passed on to somebody right. for the money that you have out there borrowed or whatever, you're, however it's leveraged, waiting to come in. And as these orders get canceled and now guys are stuck with stuff, somebody's going to pay for it, whether it's, okay, I'm going out of business bankruptcy, somebody's eating it. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. that's stuff that I don't think many people have even added to the equation is just the holding cost of the delays and the fact that you can't get the product and all right. You know, all right. The guy selling it's going to do whatever he can to pass that on. Oh yeah, and, well, and, and which is which is reasonable too. I mean, you know, you, you know, you find yourself in these situations. I I can't imagine what it's like to be a builder now and to say, okay, well, we're, we're going to try to figure out what the prices are going to be, but but who knows? Our who knows? You know, you, you you bought a lot, you've signed up. Hey, next spring, I want you to start building my house or whatever. I I can't imagine what builders say because yeah. you don't know if you're going to yeah. get the stuff or how you cost it or how you price it. I had a I had a particular project that did that exact thing you're saying, where the lumber jumped by forty six thousand dollars on yeah. one home, and I'm you know that we basically have now finally picked up starting that project up again as the owner was able to get a little more money financing and lumber prices did come back down. Right. But in the meantime, everything else went up: plumbing parts, copper. Yeah, twenty percent. It's just everything's going through the roof. No, thanks for calling. And that's on the on the big ticket items, but it's on the small ticket items as well. Here's a text, Jeff. I'm a dump truck driver. I'm getting hammered by the high cost of diesel. One year ago, I was paying two dollars nine cents a gallon. Today, I paid three fifty nine. A normal day, I use forty to fifty gallons of fuel. We're talking about fifteen hundred dollars less income for me a month. It is in fact a big deal, and and that's just. That's just the diesel gasoline that, that drives the, the dump truck. Imagine that all through the board. Look, I understand that there's people in Washington who want to say, don't worry about this, no big deal, it's going to be temporary. Well, this is a, a big deal, and we need to figure out ways to get it under control, and I'm not sure that we know that yet. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Just a quick note, the uh, prosecutor is still in the Rittenhouse case. He is still in the first phase of his closing argument to the jury. As Melissa was saying, uh, each side has two and a half hours because the state has the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. The prosecutor gets the right to open and then close, giving giving his rebuttal. So total of two and a half hours, um, The def- whether he chooses to use it all is, is up to him. The defense will have two and a half hours as well. But the prosecutor's, the first stage of the prosecutor's closing argument is going on now. And, and just a number of you were texting me, as, as we talked about earlier, one of the big developments today was the, the gun charge was dropped by the judge against Kyle Rittenhouse this morning. This was the misdemeanor charge of possession of a dangerous weapon by a person under 18. The judge found as a matter of law, the state had not proven that count beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, the, the defense had been arguing that that, that rifle, which wasn't brought in, across state lines, it was, it's not like he brought it across state lines, he it was was here in Wisconsin, and so he, he took it. Um, the, de- the defense had been arguing that that rifle fell within the exception in the law for 16- and 17-year-olds who are allowed to, to have essentially hunting rifles. And so the judge found that since this wasn't a short-barreled gun or anything like that, the law did not apply to this gun. So the judge has kicked that misdemeanor possession of a dangerous weapon by a person of, under the age of 18 count. So that's that that's not there anymore, and the jury will not be considering it. All right. 
a week from Thursday, 10 days. It's Thanksgiving. Now, Thanksgiving 2021 may or may not look the same as Thanksgiving 2020. If you will remember back a year ago, year ago, we were we were, we were seeing the, the explosion of COVID. We were seeing the numbers increase. We did not have the vaccine. We had a lot of people who were, again, really, really afraid of, of COVID and the exposure to COVID and all those different things. And we had a lot of, of so-called experts telling us, Hey, you know, you, you can't gather together. And didn't even, you might have even had an ordinance to that effect in, in Madison that said that, you know, you, you, you know, you're not supposed to gather together with people outside your household. And if you do, you have to wear masks and all these, these different types of things. Now, a lot of people just ignored it, but some people ended up taking this, this very seriously. Well, a lot has happened over the course of the, of the last year, one year to not the other. First of all, we have the vaccines. And what in Wisconsin, around 60%, maybe a little bit more people are, are in fact vaccinated. So you've got the vaccines. The vaccines have now been approved for essentially everybody over the age of five. They're just sort of rolling out, getting the kids five to 11. Kids 11 to 18 are allowed to get vaccinated. And of course, adults have been vaccinated. And they, they now have the COVID boosters that many people are in fact taking advantage of. So you've got the vaccines. You've got and this is something that I'm going to probably go into more detail with in tomorrow or Wednesday's program, but it, it's how to measure it. The number of COVID cases are, are up, but compared to what? Compared to a year ago, you know, they're, they're not even they're not even close. So, yeah, they're, they're up over the last couple of weeks. And my guess is they will tend to go up a little bit more, especially here in places like Wisconsin, as we start to spend more time indoors. But again, it, it's you don't have as a general rule, you don't have a situation where you have as many hospitalizations. You don't have as many deaths. All that's good. And it's clear to me because uh, it's it's the role of, of the vaccinations. You have more and more people who are vaccinated and that doesn't guarantee you that you're not going to get a breakthrough case. But as a general rule, unless you are in a particularly vulnerable situation, you know, you're one of the people that have the underlying health condition or whatever, and you've been vaccinated, I mean, chances are if you get COVID statistically, you're, you're not going to die from it. You're not going to be hospitalized from it. That's, that's the benefit of the vaccine. And then you've got all the boosters. So all that being said, it's a different year this year as we approach the holidays. Now, one of the reasons we were talking about prices being high, one of the reasons gas prices are high is they are, the predictions are people, people are going to be traveling in record numbers. People are going to be flying in record numbers. People are going to be driving in record numbers. And that increased demand of people, you know, driving, you know, over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house, that's one of the things that's driving the demand for gas prices up, which means the demand goes up, that means that the prices increase. So people are planning to travel, at least it seems that way. People are planning to celebrate the holidays in a more normal situation. Okay, so I was thinking about this because just yesterday, as I'm getting ready to do the research for the show after being back for a week, I'm pulling different stories. So here's here's one. Headline, vaccinated people banning unvaccinated relatives from holiday gatherings. Huh. Here's the Chicago Tribune. Kids under 12 won't be fully vaccinated by Thanksgiving. That's creating a dilemma for some parents. Huh. There's another headline. 
a majority of Americans feel like life is heading back to normal. And it talks about a new Axios-Ipsos poll that says 55% of people now believe there is little risk associated with returning to everyday activities. And then there's the story that I'm looking at that got me started in the Wall Street Journal. This Thanksgiving, the masks are off, the dinner's inside, and the relatives are back. Weary of the pandemic and reassured by vaccines, many people say they want to celebrate the holidays more normally, indoors, without masks, with more of their relatives and friends. All right, last year, many, many people, maybe you, canceled big gatherings last year. The indications are people are going back to normal and they are returning to the more typical Thanksgiving dinners. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. How are you approaching Thanksgiving this year? Is it going to be pre-COVID? Is it going to be a normal sort of Thanksgiving? Or are you still deciding, no, we're, we're not going to have the big gatherings. We're still worried about this. We've got some people that have health issues. Maybe, you know, Aunt Sally's decided she's not going to get vaccinated, so she's not going to be invited. If everybody gets together, are you going to be wearing masks? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. In the, the Wagner household, um, we're going to be having a normal Thanksgiving. I think the plans are that, you know, it's going to be after putting pretty much everything on hold last year. I think this year, you know, we're, we're going back to what would be our more traditional sort of, of gathering where people get together. Now, as far as I know, everybody that's going to be, as a matter of fact, I know this, everybody has been vaccinated. So I, I think there, there's not going to be masks. We're going to all be gathering around a big table and celebrating Thanksgiving as as normal. 855-616-1620. How are you handling Thanksgiving this year? We discuss in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. I am curious because I, I think for, for most of us, Thanksgiving 2020 was, was dialed down. Maybe not for everybody, but for most of us, I think it was dialed down and large family gatherings were probably put on hold. This year, my sense is people are ready to get back to normal, and maybe it's the presence of vaccines. Maybe it's just a, a weariness of uh, over COVID thing. But but I think for most people, 2020 is going to turn out to be a one-off. And I understand that COVID is still with us, not as extreme as it was um, a year ago, and People, I think, are, are always going to be cautious, conscious of this. But, you know, how are you going to be dealing with Thanksgiving? 855-616-1620. Before we go to the calls, let me share a couple of texts. Looking forward to a very normal Thanksgiving. No masks, just turkey, laughter, and football, just like the old days. Um, I can't wait. That's from Doug. Jeff, we're celebrating the same as we always have. Even last year, we all got together as a family. So, candidly, for us, nothing has changed. Jeff, for us, it's a usual family gathering this year. Large gathering at my cousin's house, no mask, lots of food, drinks, football, and fun. Um, my cousin is feeding 20. Jeff, this is from Larry. We canceled last year. This year we are hosting 20 family 
members. Jeff, we're celebrating the same as we did last year, and last year we ignored the COVID hysteria, his phrase, not mine. Also, we're going to be shopping on Black Friday. Mike in Fort Atkinson says, I'm spending Thanksgiving at Deer Camp with ribeye steaks. Well, you got to have your traditions, no question about it. 855-616-1620. Jeff, my kids and I are all vaccinated. Um, they got theirs in February, March. I haven't had boosters, not yet eligible, so I'm going to be certain to get my booster this week before we all get together for Thanksgiving. I'm just being careful because I'm at um, risk. Here's the text. Jeff, no Thanksgiving wearing my mask. No Thanksgiving wearing my mask. 855-616-1620. Richard in Illinois. Hi, Richard. You're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. Yeah, last year we didn't do any Christmas or Thanksgiving. This year we're going to have a small handful. Everybody will be vaccinated. My 20-something daughters who are anti-vaxxers are not coming. So that's just the way that's going to be, I guess. Were, Were they not invited or did they make the decision to not come? They were told that if you want to come for Thanksgiving dinner, you need to be vaccinated, and they would rather not come. So that's oh, their choice. Okay, just why? Why did you? Why did you make that that choice? Because you think that they put you at, at unrealistic, unreasonable risk. Because I think that they are. T- well, I don't want to get in the whole right. information informed and misinformed thing. But my my one daughter is so misinformed; she thinks that the government's not and the president's not vaccinated. I told her she needs to get her information from a different source. Then, so, right. but uh, because while well, my wife's dad father comes from Missouri, he's in his eighties. So okay. I just you know it, it, an unreasonable it, risk. It, okay. It, it, in, in my opinion, it's best not to mix vaccinated with unvaccinated. That's all. So. Okay. How do you you think the same thing's going to hold true at Christmas? If your if your kids still aren't vaccinated, you think you're not going to see them at Christmas? No, I think it's going to be different. Then we're going to have a different group of group okay. of people. Then I think so. Got it. Okay. Thanks for call. Appreciate. It. And, and by the way, I'm, I'm. This isn't a judgmental thing. It's. I mean, you you get individuals get to decide what they, they, they want to do and what their comfort levels are. My sense is, and, and part of this is because of, of vaccinations, and part of this is just recognizing that I, the truth is we're not going to eradicate COVID. I, I, you know, maybe somebody, people think that, but we're, we're not going to eradicate COVID. COVID. COVID is going to be with us, and there's going to be just like the flu. And, and I understand COVID is not the flu, so I, I get it. It's different than that. But I, I think, you know, COVID is a virus, and COVID's not going to go away. And there will be times, you know, of the year where COVID flares up as people are, you know, going, starting to go more inside. And that, that's just going to be... The reality, going back to, you know, a year and a half ago where we talked about flattening the curve and making sure that the number of people who get COVID don't overwhelm the hospital systems and things like that. But I, I think the reality is if anybody thinks COVID is going to disappear, I just don't think that that's the, the case. So we all have to figure out our own comfort level in, you know, living with COVID or not. Uh, Jeff, if we are vaccinated, why are we afraid of um, the unvaccinated? Because aren't we protected? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I think that's what a lot of people are, are saying. But at the same time, if you've got, there are breakthrough cases. And if you've got somebody for whom, if they get COVID, there's a chance that it could be a life-threatening thing as opposed to just a minor inconvenience. I'm sure that that's what the concern 
would be. Jeff, the pandemic never changed how we did Thanksgiving, nor will it. We are still having our three daughters with our children, my aunt, my cousin all over. I don't ask if they're vaccinated. Um, so don't have any idea at all. Jeff, last year we carried on as normal. Then my husband and I both came down with COVID a few days later. Here's hoping normal and safe can be found in the same sentence again someday. Um, yeah, well, you've got that element there as well. Um, Jeff, it's so sad that families are being divided over this. And I think that that is the case. Families are being divided over this, just like families end up getting divided over politics and things like that. And, and I don't know that that's going to change in the near future. But I think more and more people are getting back to normal. I think part of that is a testament to the vaccine. Part of it is a testament to, I just think, COVID fatigue that's out there as well. So we'll see whether the numbers spike after Thanksgivings. My my guess is, I don't know that it's going to spike any more than it would have spiked otherwise, given the fact that, you know, now, like I say, in the northern states, we're starting to be inside more. Back with more in just a moment. And this is Jeff Wagner. The prosecution in the Rittenhouse case is still going on with the first stage of their closing argument. I will offer this comment, and I haven't had a chance to listen to it. I I do, when I was a prosecutor, I always believed that less is more. For example, the judge has given each side two and a half hours. That doesn't mean necessarily that you should use two and a half hours. And one of the things that I found, now think about your own life, it's just, it's hard at some point in time, people start to tune out. And when you've got folks in a, in a jury box, it's hard to hold their attention for hour after hour. I think in some cases, the, the best closing arguments are the ones that you give that, that highlight, you know, your, your strong points. Obviously, you've got weak points. You've got to address it. But, I mean, I've, I've always found that think about when you went to classes, if you were if you went to college or something, there, there's a reason why. College classes are 50 minutes long or, you know, in the extreme, an hour and 15 minutes because they know that people have trouble paying attention beyond that. Sometimes I see these lawyers who just like to hear themselves talk, and I'm not saying that that's this prosecutor, but they like to hear themselves talk, and instead of hitting the highlights and and condensing stuff, because let's face it, this jury and they know this case. I mean, they've heard it for two weeks. They've got their opinions. They're ready to go and deliberate. And, and I'm not sure that there's anything in particular that you're going to get out of a closing argument that somebody's going to say, oh, I've, I've automatically changed my position on this. So sometimes less is more. And just because the judge gives you two and a half hours doesn't mean you need to use two and a half hours. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Even though I was on vacation last week, I, I, I just can't help it. You can take the talk show host out of the studio, but you can't take the studio out of the talk show host. So I, I'm sitting there, and I, I find like these interesting stories that I kind of collect, and I think I can't wait to get back on the air and discuss them with people. And, yeah, I understand there's a lot of other stuff going on. I want to continue to have conversations about how we deal with COVID. And, of course, as we were talking about inflation, and you've got the Biden cratering approval numbers, and, yeah, we're going to talk about that and all sort of stuff, things going on at the border, for example, and uh, the vaccine mandate that kind of blew up in Biden's face. Oh, by the way, I have been saying for the longest time that the, these vaccine mandates as applied to health workers 
we're, we're going to pose huge problems. And th- those problems are, are coming home to roost. Um, I, I, I can only, I'm not going to identify where he works, but I, I, I know someone who works at a, a large nursing home. And I've been saying the longest, for the longest time that, you know, these mandates that we're putting in that all workers at nursing homes have to be vaccinated, it, it's, it's going to result in nursing homes closing because there's people, it's not like you're just talking about nurses and, and doctors. You're, you're talking about people who work at the nursing homes who are who are cooking and who are doing the cleaning and all that sort of stuff. The the numbers were that about forty percent of people working at nursing homes, at least as of a couple months ago, were unvaccinated. And, and my point was just. I was asking rhetorically, you know, what what's going to happen if you say by November 1st or by November 8th or by November 15th, you have to be vaccinated? What's going to happen if people aren't vaccinated? What where what are you going to do? And a number of people were poo pooing that saying, oh, people aren't going to give up their jobs. They're, they're going to be vaccinated. And I said, well, I, I don't know, because like when you're talking about nursing homes, you're, you're talking about jobs where it, in many cases it's people who aren't making that much money and where there is a degree of flexibility. They, they can go, you know, to other jobs that are out there. And keep in mind that the Biden administration's effort to force all employers to, you know, require their employees to be vaccinated by January, that's, that's, that's dead in the water, essentially. An appeals court has put that on hold, and I don't see the Supreme Court overruling that. So you, you've got this mobility. Anyhow, know a guy who, who works for a, a large nursing home, assisted living type facility in our area. Without going into too many numbers, I was talking to him last night, and um, he said, Jeff, I hate to tell you you're right, but you're right. Our, our mandate kicked in, and we've lost 35 to 40% of our employees. 35 to 40% of our employees have been told that they are, are they're not at work right now because they didn't get vaccines. Now, the, the you know, and I, I won't go into any more detail than that because I, I don't want to give away where my friend works, but, but 35 to 40%, and this is a major nursing home. And if it's happening at their facility, it, it's happening, I got to believe it's happening all over. And, you know, for everybody who thinks, oh, let's do these vaccine mandates and all, okay, that that's fine, but explain to me in the real world, not the Oval Office or not, you know, some office in some conference room in Washington, D.C., explain to me in the real world what is going to happen if you've got an assisted living facility or a nursing home that now suddenly already understaffed. Um, I, th- I think even before these vaccine mandates, the numbers were about 25 percent of nursing home positions were, were vacant across the country. It varies, of course, you know, from community to community, but about nationwide, 25 percent were um, were, were vacant. Now, what happens if on top of that, now you've only got 75% staffing to begin with, and what happens if 45, 40% or 30% or 25% of that 75%, you know, are, are now put on administrative leave or, or let go? And again, my friend who I was talking to says, we, we just don't know what's going to happen. We, we're, we're, we're in the process of having closed certain things, and, you know, we're wondering if we can keep the doors open. And again, it's the, it's the real world consequences of some of these policies. And I said this was going to happen months ago. And I think, you know, tip to some people in the news media, if you want stories, you know, focus on see now, now that these dates are hitting, what is in fact the real world impact? 
particularly outside of the hospitals and in these situations where people have do have the employees have a lot of different choices all right let us completely and totally switch gears next story it could come from here but it doesn't comes from austin texas I want to tell you about a high school in Austin, Texas. It's called the Travis Early College High School. All right? Austin, Texas. The principal noticed that they were having all sorts of disciplinary problems this year involving the bathrooms. 90% of their drug-related instances occurred in bathrooms and bathroom stalls. So in other words, kids would go into the bathrooms to do cocaine or to smoke pot or to sell drugs or whatever. And then they, they had other behavioral, what they describe as behavioral incidents as well, that are were going on in the stalls of the boys' and girls' men's and women's restrooms. They tried to deal with this by saying, okay, some of the restrooms that we can't monitor as well as we'd like, well, we're just going to close them. So we'll, we'll lock them because that, that we, we just don't have enough coverage on this. And, and they found that when they tried to do that, it really wasn't practical because it, it just it, it made it too difficult for the kids to go to the bathroom and use the bathroom. The kids who needed to use the restrooms, it made it just too difficult, you know, to have to run across the campus if, if they locked some of them, that they had a, most, a more difficult time monitoring. So here's what they decided to do. They removed the doors from all the restroom stalls, removed restroom doors, and removed restroom stalls. Now, the way this is set up, the the doors on the stalls, stalls are still there, but they removed the doors. So the way this is set up is apparently from, from the outside, you can't see anybody doing their business, you know, but but the doors are gone and the doors and the stalls are gone. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Principal says, look, we, we, we just need to, we need to monitor stuff. So this is what we're doing. What do you think about this? Is this an overreaction to dealing with disciplinary problems? 855-616-1620. We discuss. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. To me, this story is the reason why we we can't have nice things. It, it just obviously the last thing you want to do in a high school is take off the doors to the bathroom. All right, there's all sorts of concerns about that. But if if this is where you've got problems, whether it's drug use or whatever other behavioral stuff is going on, and you're not able to monitor the stuff as well as you want, and you're not certainly going to put cameras up in the bathrooms and things like that, at some point in time, you've got to do something to keep this stuff under control. And unfortunately, sometimes you have to take these extreme measures, which is what it seems to me that they have done and it's tough for me to criticize because we all complain when you got drugs at school we all got complain when you got fights and kids that are beaten up in bathrooms and things like that well all right at some point in time this is what happens when that is an issue and that's what they're doing in texas and hopefully it won't come to that in milwaukee but you never know all right tomorrow 8 a.m tomorrow 
is your opportunity to do something that you have not had a chance to do in 10 years. Tomorrow, the sixth Green Bay Packers stock sale kicks off at 8 a.m. The Packers announcing today that they will sell 300,000 shares of stock at $300 per share plus handling fee. The sale will continue until February 25th of next year, but could be extended, assuming, I guess, that they don't sell all 300,000 shares. Um, let's see. Um, regulatory approval is on a state-by-state basis. Um, some have not yet done so. Um, more details are going to be available tomorrow. The Packers say they would use the money for improvements at Lambeau Field, projects at the stadi- stadium, including completed and planned concourse upgrades, new video score car, scoreboards, totaling about $250 million. Um, the deal is that um, you are limited to 200 shares, including any shares acquired in the 1997 and the 2011 sales. You can make purchases online by credit card, debit card, or electronic bank transfer. You can also pay by personal check or cashier's check. Now, unlike most sales of stock, you know, normally when you buy stock, you buy stock with the idea that you're going to buy it at one price, it is going to appreciate, and then you're going to be able to sell it for profit. Unlike regular stock, Packers stock cannot be sold and does not pay dividends. So in other words, that, that $300 that you pay for it, you're, you're not going to be able to sell it. That is, you know, and, and if you've got up to 200 shares of it, well, you know, those shares have no intrinsic value. You're not going to be able to sell them. You're not going to get dividends on them. You can transfer them, however, to family members. And if you're a shareholder, you do get to vote for the Packers Board of Directors and some other motions at the annual shareholders meeting in July. Um, so again, this is there's no inherent value to this. This is unlike most stock transactions. And yet the Packers think that they're going to be able to sell 300,000 shares at $300 per share. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Everybody loves the Green Bay Packers. There's no question about it. And everybody wants to contribute, and we all want to see them succeed, no doubt about it. All right, $300 a share, 300,000 shares that have no value, they pay no dividends, they cannot be sold, they can only be, you know, handed down. 855-616-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Will they sell out, given the economy, 2021, given all the things that are going on? All right, will the Packers sell 300,000 shares at $300 a share? 855-616-1620, we discuss in a moment. What do you think is going to happen? Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620. If you haven't heard, tomorrow, 8 8 a.m., the Packers, for the first time since 2011, are are selling 300,000 shares of stock, $300 a share. The stock... Has no, it, it has no value. By that I mean, you pay the three hundred dollars, you get the certificate. You you can't 
sell it. So it's not like, hey, I bought it for three hundred. Next year it's worth four hundred. It's it's not like that. It's it's three hundred bucks. Um, you get. They don't pay dividends on this. You get to vote for board of directors and attend a shareholders meeting. But essentially, you're paying 300 bucks for a certificate that you hang up on the wall. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I guess for Packer fans out there, I could understand owning – if you're a huge Packer fan and you've got that, that man cave and you want to have a share of stock – that you know, you want that certificate. You want to put it up on the wall next to your signed Reggie White jersey or something like that. I, I guess I, I understand, you know, that is kind of a, a souvenir and why you would want to buy one. I'm not sure I understand why anybody would own 200, which is the you know I I get one share because hey look I'm a I'm an owner of the Packers here boom I've got this on the wall, 200 shares of it. Hmm. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Kelly and Slinger. Kelly, you're on WTMJ. Hey Jeff, thanks Hi. for taking my call. Hi, Kelly. Welcome back. Thank you. Um, as 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 you say, if you can spend that kind of money, that's God's way of telling you you've got too much money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. It, it it just seems like um, I I don't know maybe a talking point like you said something that you can put up on your wall, but. Boy, I, I can think of a lot of things that I could do with three hundred dollars. Well, I'm, you know, somebody was texting me and saying, "Well, you know, it's, it, you know, you you do this instead of a ticket." But if if you buy a ticket, at least you're you're going to go see that that game. Um, I, I guess again, I I'm trying to think this through. I could see it as a as a curio, it's something that you again, like you hang on the wall in, in your in your rec room or whatever, and you can say you're an owner. Can you think of any reason, Kelly, why you would need to own ten or or a hundred or two hundred shares of stock no, no no zero and and even sitting at a shareholders meeting in the middle of july has zero interest in I, me well i mean you think thanks for calling i mean again it maybe for 300 bucks if you're a huge fan i mean i i look you know i, I mean and, and i understand that there are people who spend you know what, what i would consider and i, I never i if people can afford to do stuff, that that's fine. I'm not the one. You you could look at stuff I spend money on. And you say, well, that would be a stupid purchase, or who would spend money on golf clubs or things like that. But at least like with golf clubs, I'm I'm out there. I'm hitting golf balls with them. I mean, I'm doing something. But I mean, some people, for example, will spend crazy money. What I would consider to be crazy money on autographed jerseys or whatever. So, like I say, I understand. If you want it, if you're a big Packers fan and you want that one stock certificate to put up in your wall, I get that. But but at $300 per 200 shares, I mean, or 100 shares or whatever, you know, maybe, okay, if you've got three or four kids, you know, and you want to give each one uh, a stock certificate as a Christmas gift or a Hanukkah present or something, you know, maybe, just maybe I understand. But, but boy, I don't know. Um, Jeff, I wouldn't doubt these sell out quickly. And, you know, what a coincidence that they put them on sale when the team is doing really well. Well, yeah, the timing is everything. Jeff, I think it's a scam. Only Wisconsinites would fall for this. Well, I, I, my guess is, though, they're going to be getting a lot of people buying stock shares from all over the country. Um, Jeff, all the hassle of ownership with none of the benefits. Um, <laughs> grift, pure and simple. Well, I mean, nobody's holding a gun to your head and saying that you have to buy it. I'm just, I'm just, intrigued um, with this. Um, Jeff, if you buy a ticket, you don't even get the ticket to keep. Um, with the stock, you do get to keep your share. That's fine. Jeff, in 2011, I didn't have a pot to pee in or a window to throw it out of, but I spent $250 for my share. Huh. 
Okay. Well, again, it's that's I, I get it, but at least that case, it, it's only it's only one share. Jeff, I think they'll sell out all the shares, and I bet you a nickel that they'll sell out within a week. There are Packers fans all over the world, and I'm sure even in this economy, there will be plenty of people eager to buy a piece of something no other NFL franchise has to offer the common person. Even though, I mean, it's a novelty, and it's a curio, and I get that. But, um, boy, Jeff, I'm not sure if they'll sell out, but I think it's perfect timing for a Christmas gift. Right. Um, you say, okay, you, you know, you don't, you're tired of that sweater, you're tired of the, the socks, you don't want underwear. Here, I'll spend 300 bucks. Melissa Barkley. I could see, well, I could see that being a, a nice Christmas gift to a, a super fan. You know, that would be a nice, like, stocking stuffer or just a gift gift. It's, well, it's 300 bucks. It's 300 so, I mean, bucks. It, it's not, <laughs> this I mean, is your full Christmas well, gift. Well, that, that's, that's, I guess, it. And again, I'm, I'm not lecturing people. People get to spend their money however they want. And my guess is they, they will sell a, a good chunk I'm of these. I'm guessing they will. Yeah. But, I mean, let's, let's face it. You're essentially paying $300 for a piece of paper. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, and, 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 <laughs> can't right. really do anything with it. No, but... you, you can't sell it. Mm-hmm. You can't. It doesn't pay you dividends. It's just $300 for a piece well, of paper. It is, like you said, the novelty. And you get to tell people that you're you, you part you're part owner in the Packers. Um, yeah. I, guess, I mean, yeah. I guess it's just bragging rights. Um, yeah. Well, now somebody says the Packers are a unique franchise in all the NFL. We need to support them in this way. Mm-hmm. Okay, well. And that that's true. And if fans want to donate money in that fashion, that that's that's fine. At the same time, I don't necessarily get the idea that the Packers are hurting for revenue. But if if you you know you want to buy this, can't think of anything else. The Beanie Babies aren't coming from the boat in China. <laughs> you know you you can't get the games or whatever. There's no computer chips. So if you wanted to buy a new car, you can't figure that out. And you've got three hundred dollars burning a hole in your pocket, or. 300 times $300 times 200 shares, which are the maximum that somebody can buy. Well, okay, tomorrow at 8 o'clock, they take credit cards, I'm told. Best of luck. Um, I, I, on the other hand, have something I have to do at 8 o'clock. So I'm, <laughs> you I'm, won't be doing that. I will. No, no. That's, that's the one that you know, my wife gives me enough looks at the way we on the things I will spend money on. That's not going to necessarily be one of them. But if people want to go that route. I say go with God. When we come back, we'll find out what John McCure has on his mind on Wisconsin's Afternoon News.